Thank you, Quig. Servant of all. Appreciate you, brother. All right, good morning, everybody. If you got a Bible, we're going to be kind of all over the place. We're going to start in 1 Peter 2. So if you want to find your way there, that's in the New Testament, kind of near the end. You'll find it. Use your table of contents. There's no shame in that. So over the last couple of weeks, Quig and Landon have taken the liberty to share with you their stories, right, of how Jesus changed their lives. And this phenomena of rehearsing the story, the tale of what happened, of how followers of Jesus came to be followers of Jesus has a rich history. And in fact, I think we can make a pretty strong case that one of the reasons that God draws people to faith in himself is so that they can tell the story of how God drew them to faith in himself. If you find, if you find your way to 1 Peter, we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 9. Just listen to this. This is what Peter is saying here. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. All of those things, by the way, they're all sourced in Exodus 19. Before the law was given, there's a promise that if they obeyed, they would be these things. But we didn't obey. And so Peter is describing that all of those things have been given to us. We didn't earn them, but they were a gift. There's no, no condition of obedience here. They were received as a gift by faith. He says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of him who calls you out of his darkness, out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He gave us all those fantastic things so that we would declare his praises. We would tell the story of what he's done and how he's done it, right? Part of our lives is there's this impulse to tell the story. And as we tell the story, we're necessarily praising him. We're talking about his greatness. What drew us to him? How did he accomplish it? The Apostle Paul does this. He tells the story of how he went on this trip intending to go to Damascus to capture all these renegade Jews that were following this crucified pretender. But on the way to Damascus, he met this crucified one who was quite clearly not pretending and it completely blew up his life. And he tells that story of the trip to Damascus over and over and over. You see it several times in the New Testament. And it's like, I've kind of reflected, why does Paul use this story so much? One reason, I think, is that language is the story of the human heart. Like, this, it's so much easier. Is it not easier for you to read a novel than it is for you to read some kind of nonfiction treatise, right? You, we love story. And Paul knows that stories can be a very effective uh, approach when we're trying to persuade someone of the truth of something. And in particular, Paul wants to persuade people that the Jesus that met him on that road perhaps might meet you, right? And so he tells his story. He tells it over and over again. I think another reason he told it is because he just couldn't get over it. I think it was fun for Paul to think about and to talk about how Jesus had changed his life. I think that Paul probably literally laughed at his own foolishness. God's mercy to him. There's one, one place where he tells kind of a, a fragment of the story. It's in 1 Timothy 1. And he says, do you know why? I, I've thought about this. Do you know why God picked me? Like of all the people in the world that God could extend his mercy, do you know why, how I caught his eye? What, what it was about me that made him pick me? Do you know what he, you know what he says? Because I was the worst of everybody. God picked me as an example of the limitless patience of God. He's looking around, what, who, was the, who was the most train wreck of a guy that I could rescue so that no one would ever need to wonder, could the gospel apply to me? And when he was looking for that guy, he picked me. 
of the chief of sinners, right? He loves to tell the story. I think he just embraced his own ludicrousness because it was an example of the mercy, the limitless grace of God. You can find Paul tell the, the fuller versions of his story. It shows up in Acts 8, Acts 22, Acts 26, Galatians 1. And you, I mean, it shows up so many times that you just get the impression that telling his story was just a normal thing that Paul did as he traveled around the Roman Empire. Can I tell you what happened? I went on, the, I went on this trip and the whole thing spun out of control. But whether I'm right or not that Paul loved to tell his story, um, I hope that you might indulge me to tell you mine or at least a part of it. The story is long. I'm not gonna give you the whole version. It's been decades in the making. But I'm gonna tell you a part of my story, and I wish that I could hear yours. We are in an imbalanced relationship right now because I have the microphone and you don't. But I hope that the day will come, maybe soon, that others will also have a chance to hear your story. That you'll think about this. Like, what is the story? And to whom could I tell it? Um, but for the moment, it's my turn, and I'm gonna declare the praises of the one who called me out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So I grew up in a Christian home, um, at least nominally Christian. Uh, we went to church sometimes, not so much in the summer because we had things to do. But uh, for the most part, it was Christian-ish, right? And I heard the gospel-ish, maybe, but not in a way that ever really made sense to me. I knew certain claims. I knew that if you believe in Jesus, then when you die, you go to heaven. But I didn't honestly understand, like, what does this have to do with that? Why is it... You know, intellectual assent to this particular claim is going to purchase, you know, eternity in heaven, right? How does that, you know, I've had some sense of that, but why is it not if you believe the grass is green, then when you die, you go to heaven? Why is it not that if you believe that the moon is made out of cheese, that when you die, you go to heaven? What is this thing? And I have a very specific memory of being in my living room at my house in Oakton, Virginia, and asking my mom, okay, so but why? Like, what does A have to do with B? And that she answered me, and she probably did a fine job but I had no idea what she said, right? I, had, I did not have ears to hear it. And so whatever, and off we go. And I just continued my life. And then I graduated from high school and I went to James Madison University, which I love, 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 love. Did you guys love college? If you went to college? For me, it was such a happy, happy place and a happy time. JMU is one of the happiest places on earth. And uh, among the myriad of things that happened there that were just constant joy to me, was I met a guy named Andy Sparks. And Andy came by my dorm room, and Andy uh, was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, better known today as Crew. And Andy shared with me um, this little booklet that's a summary of the gospel message. It's called The Four Spiritual Laws. And he shared the four spiritual laws with me, and I heard it, and it very clearly lays out the gospel message. And I just thought, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I believe. That's it, right? And it wasn't revelatory to me. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like the lights came on and everything's like, well, yeah, I mean, I heard something like that. And I never would have been able to articulate it with the clarity that Andy did or the, you know, the organization of that little booklet. But it was the first time that I can remember at least having it all laid out in a way that was clear. It just didn't impress me all that much. But Andy also invited me to join a Bible study that Tony Diggs was starting. His name is Tony Diggs, A.P. Diggs. And I agreed that I would come to this Bible study. But then they tricked me and they held the Bible study in my room, right? <laughs> I learned over my 20 years with Crusade, this is a standard technique, right? You just have the study in the room of the kid that you don't think is gonna come because what's he gonna do, right? I mean, it's in, it's in, it was in my room, okay? But what you need to know about my dorm room in Hillside Hall at JMU is that every wall 
was plastered with posters of beautiful women uh, underdressed. Every wall, okay? So much so that my dorm room actually had a reputation. We would literally have people that I did not know drop by my room just to see my posters. And if that seems strange to you, you gotta know that this was before the internet existed. And so it was just a more desperate age, okay? And we held this Bible study there in my, my dorm in Hillside Hall. And I tell you, Tony would lead the study and we would come in and we would study the scriptures and whatever spiritual value was imparted on that Bible study was significantly undercut by the posters on those walls. But people came. In fact, it was an unusually well-attended freshman Bible study for some reason. And in that study, you guys, in that study, surrounded by all these images, my life began to change. Genuinely, actually, my life began to change. And a slow transformation began. And those posters stayed up all year long. But we took them down at the end of the year and didn't put them back up my sophomore year because something had begun to change in me. It didn't finish, but the work had started. Do you remember the moment that the work began? JMU, I love that place. It's where I met my wife. It's where my whole life got turned upside down. Now, when I showed up at Madison, two ideas coexisted in my brain. One was that Jesus rose from the dead. I knew what Easter was about, thank you very much, right? I know stuff. Good Friday, he dies. Easter, he rises from the dead. I, I thought that that was true. But the second idea was that this didn't matter at all. And my freshman year, the incongruence between these two things became inescapable to me. Either he rose from the dead, and this is the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, or it's totally irrelevant because it didn't happen. But this, this couldn't be, right? This just couldn't make any sense. And so Andy gave me this book. Andy Sparks gave me this book um, about the resurrection. And it basically explored through like all these possible theories. What could, what could make sense of the data, right? So maybe Jesus wasn't really dead. He's, you know, he like fainted because from the loss of blood, but then he revived in the coolness of the tomb. Maybe the disciples stole the body. Maybe the religious leaders stole the body. Maybe people hallucinated. Maybe they got lost on the way to the tomb and they went to an empty tomb, but Jesus was dead body was over or something right so I read through and I, as I read it all I'm like none of these make any like it happened I really think that the best I know it's I mean believe me I get it people don't rise from the dead at least not yet they will everybody's gonna rise from the dead eventually but at this time they don't or they hadn't but I think he really did and as I was confronted with this claim that he actually is risen he's stronger than death it became inescapable to me that this is not just true but it's important that it is, in fact, the most significant thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. It explains so much. It validates what he has done. It validates everything he said about himself. And it validates everything he said about me. And it was transformative for me. It is the defining event in human history. And the only way that it could be insignificant is if it didn't happen. But I thought that it did. I, th I still think that it did. And I'm going to bet my entire life on the fact that it did. And if it's true, it's important. And it marks us. When I read that book and I began to churn and to ponder, I came to the inescapable conclusion that I needed 
to follow Jesus. But I want you to watch this because this is a really important part of the story, okay? All these things that I'm learning, all this information, all this data, it wasn't being received in a vacuum, okay? It was being received in a community, in a group of people, in a, in a, in a little pocket of friends, right? This journey that I was going on in which all these things that I'd heard-ish and were kind of like in gray tones as they became like vivid color and transformative for me. It was all happening in a set of relationships. I was not alone in my room just reading a book. I was in a community and there were guys like Neil Webb, whom I don't think anybody here knows, and Todd Meyer, who some of you do know, right? And all of this theoretical heady stuff was being played out in real relationships. And bit by bit, my life began to change. What was happening, and I didn't know it at the time, I didn't have language for it, was that all of my loves were being reordered. There were all these unworthy things that I had placed at the top of the stack and a whole bunch of really worthy, important things that I had just like delegated to the bottom, right? But this happened, these things started to shift and I began to love worthy things more and unworthy things less and my whole life began to be unpacked. And all of that was happening with a group of people, with a group of friends. And I didn't know it yet, but I was experiencing a phenomena that Paul describes in 1 Thess 2.8. Maybe you've heard this. I quote this verse all the time because I love it. Here's what it says. 1 Thess 2.8. It says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you two things. Check it out. Not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Okay, those are the two things that Paul shared with the Thessalonians, the gospel of God and his life as well, okay? The gospel of God, that's the verbal articulation of the gospel. That's the data, that's the information. That's Andy Sparks coming to my room every week faithfully to answer the questions that I have about Jesus. I wish, it would be such a gift if Andy had secretly been recording those conversations. I would love to hear like what... Was I, what was opaque to me at that time? I think not all of it was. I didn't know anything, right? What were the things, what did I, what was the first question I ever asked Andy that started to like, kind of like work its way in? I don't remember at this point. But there was data, there was information, right? I would go to this Bible study and Tony Diggs would teach me stuff in this very basic, very fundamental Bible study. Good grief, what were the, what were the things that I learned? People were speaking, I was listening. People were writing and I was reading, Right? information that I didn't have was being given to me. Questions were being answered and my mind was being kind of reorganized. Faulty beliefs and faulty behaviors were being challenged a bit at a time and it was all changing. But also at the exact same time, people were sharing their lives with me. This group of guys, men and women, people that I enjoyed, people that I felt safe with, people that I did fun things with, people who liked me, and people that I liked were modeling the Christian life. I remember one thing very clearly is that they modeled their failures. They talked about their own badness and brokenness. And do you know what that does? You know what that does? That creates a place of safety where you're allowed to talk about your badness and brokenness. And in my experience, nobody gets better. Nobody changes if there's not enough space that you can be honest about what you actually are, right? If you're just stuck in some community, it's all curated and it's all fake and projected and you know it's not really you, it's just your avatar. Nobody grows in that environment. But I was in a place where we were allowed to be bad, we were allowed to be broken, to bring our stuff out of the darkness into the light. And because these guys did it, I didn't think they'd burn me if I did it. And that was massive. Holy moly, what a change that makes 
in a person's life. I got invited to a prayer meeting every single week of my freshman year that was held Sunday nights in Hillside Hall, and I never went, not one time. Do you know why? Because that sounded so boring, right? Who wants to go sit in a room for an hour and pray? Like, not me, right? But you know what happened? Eventually, my sophomore year, we started holding these prayer meetings at 6 a.m. on Wednesdays. And I was there every week. 6 a.m. is early. It is cold and dark at 6 in the morning. But we would get together every week to pray that the gospel would spread across JMU, that people would hear of Jesus. There would be some tidal wave of people coming to faith. And I went from being too lazy to walk across the hall on a Sunday night when I was wide awake to getting up early in the morning to go pray. And it was because there was this community, this group of friends. And I wasn't going to go pray alone. I was going to go pray with these people that I loved and who loved me. And it was the sharing of their lives that transformed mine. And then this happened, and this was massive. Andy Sparks, he, um, the guy that started this whole thing, he invited me to come with him when he would talk to people about Jesus. And so I went. And at first, I was simply a tag-along. Andy, would, you know, Andy was the professional. He knew what he was doing. And I would come along, and I wouldn't say anything, but I would listen. And what I learned is that like, the questions that people would ask him, they fall into a pretty finite set, right? And Andy had heard the questions a hundred times and he had good answers. And I learned over time, like, you know, I know what Andy's gonna say next. And in fact, I could say it myself. And I got to the point that I, not just that I could say it, but that I wanted to say it. And I learned how to talk to people about Jesus by spending my afternoons with Andy, watching him talk to people about Jesus. What Jesus was doing in my life was so fun. So obviously central to God's eternal purposes, that it became so thrilling to me to think that I could catalyze that in somebody else's life. And I remember when I began to go out with Andy and then I began to go out on my own and then I began to take other younger guys with me, right? I remember the first kid I ever saw become a follower of Jesus through my lips. His name was Sean. And what great fun to find out that Sean's life has been changed. And I was, I'm like, what do I know? I, but I was the guy, I was the sock puppet through whom God spoke to Sean. And for a hundred billion years, that's gonna matter. What a thrill that we're not left on the bench, but we get to take the field and be involved in helping people come to know Jesus. It was so incredibly fun. And I learned at JMU that the gospel came to me on the way to someone else, just like the gospel had come to someone else on the way to me. And just like the gospel came to someone else on the way to you. And just like the gospel came to you on the way to someone else. What a thrill that we are involved in God's purposes. He does not just lead us on the sidelines. Last week, Quig asked the question, like, why don't we? If it's so great, if Jesus has made this so clear, why don't we talk to people with greater winsomeness or greater urgency or greater frequency? Why don't we do that? And um, I appreciate the list that you started, and I would humbly like to add one more reason to the list. What I've seen in my own life and what I've observed in others, I think there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I think that we don't talk to people about Jesus because we don't think it's gonna make any difference. We don't think they're gonna believe anyway. And that expectation of what we think of as failure just keeps us from even trying, right? I don't know what I'm gonna say, or I'll screw it up, or I'll do more harm than good, or even if I don't do more harm than good, I probably won't do any good in the first place, and so 
why bother, right? I mean, if you can like share the gospel with somebody and they don't believe, or you can not share the gospel with somebody and they don't believe, the second option is easier, right? So just don't talk to anybody. Same outcome either way, right? Does this, am I making this up? Does this sound plausible to you that this functions in our minds? If that, if that does resonate, let me, let me simply say, you don't know that. You don't know that. You do not know what will happen if you open your mouth and talk about Jesus. And in fact, I believe that great good will come of that if you do that. Even at the most basic level, if you proclaim the gospel, if you speak of Christ, if you tell your story, you are declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And if that's all that happens, that's enough. The declaration of his supremacy, telling the story of his beauty, his sufficiency to meet our needs, what he's meant in your life, that that alone is a success all by itself. That's 1 Peter 2.9. We declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful life. Full stop. We are not responsible for the result. We are simply called in obedience to tell the story, to declare his excellence. But if we do that, you may get a whole lot more besides, right? It may deepen your sense of all that you've been given. The rehearsing of that story, the telling of the, the tale will bring to your mind the sweetness of his love for you. And that has value. Listen to what Paul says. Galatians 2.19, he says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you tell others the story of how he loved you and loves you still, it deepens your awareness of his pursuing love. It strengthens your connection to him. And that itself, I think, might give you hope for the other burdens that you face. And I suspect that there are many. It might help you fight sin. It may set you on a path to flourishing. Maybe, does anybody, literally, does anybody in this room have such a surplus of hope that you don't need anymore for the burdens that you face, the things that you fear, the challenges that you're dragging around? I mean, are you just so flush with hope that you're like, please, I couldn't take another bite? I doubt it. Listen to Romans 8. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The rehearsing of the story of how he gave himself up for you floods our hearts with hope that there may be yet more. When we tell the story to others, it helps us believe that he will show up in desperate circumstances. It helps us believe that perhaps those that we love, maybe those that we're talking to at that moment or others that we love, may yet come to believe. Talking to them or to anyone about Jesus and what he's done in your life increases the plausibility structures in our mind that he is for us, right? And then there's this, get this. You might actually contribute to someone coming to follow Jesus. That can happen. It happens all the time. It happened to you. It happened to Quig. Some dude shared with Quig. Don't you wish you knew Quig when he was a college kid? Don't you get the sense that he was a pretty good time? Right? And nobody thought you were coming to faith, frankly. Right? But he did. Right? In, 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 in Philippi, it says that God opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. It wasn't the last time. In Ephesus, 
because God is rich in mercy, he made those that were dead in their transgressions alive in Christ. On the island of Crete, where Titus served as pastor, it was the love and kindness of God that appeared. And he saved those people because of his mercy. He did it at JMU, and he does it in Roanoke. What were the particulars for you? What's the story? I want, you, I want to invite you to do something this afternoon. If you have, like, take 30 minutes. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. Sit down for a half hour, right? Grab a piece of paper. Grab a pen. And start to draw to mind your story. What happened? When did it start? Maybe you were a little kid. I don't know. Were you six? Were you in high school? Were you a college kid? Maybe it was last year. What was going on in your life? Was it a happy time? Or, more likely, was it a difficult time? My guess would be for most of us, we came to Christ in the midst of some, some disruption, something almost always like, it's not working anymore. What do I do, right? Who, who are the people? Was there somebody moving their lips, answering your questions, challenging you, pointing you to something? Was there a book that you read? What was it? What was the story? What was going on in your life? Who were the key players? Was there something that clicked? It's like, ah, the penny drops. And now I see something in a way that I hadn't, previously hadn't made sense to me before or maybe you might think of well I don't know I can't remember what happened but I remember the result of it because this began to be my loves were that thing about your loves being reordered yeah that's something like that happened to me what was the story jot it down begin to like just pull together Lord what did you do how did you do it maybe it was a slow process like me maybe it was a sudden event you know the date click click you know the key players. Maybe there was some decision that you made that kind of embodied that the old is gone and the new has come. And I think that if you were to choose to do that, you might, it might be a really fun half hour for you to rehearse the love and the kindness of God and his pursuit of you and how he won you and made you his own. If you're like, I don't think there's a story to tell. Well, Congratulations, because the story could start right now. This might be the day that there's a process in going on. And that story doesn't need, the story doesn't need to be complete. The story doesn't need, even need to have started. But you're here. You're here. Maybe there is a work that God would be pleased to do and a story that he's writing. He is the author and perfecter of our story. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, right? And if you write the story out and you're thinking about how it's all happened, then I just wonder, it might be, be careful, because it might be as you look at the story, you might start to think of somebody to whom you could tell the story. Because stories are meant to be told. And who is it that should have the privilege to hear of what God has done? Who is it that should hear you declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light? I want to invite you, if you want to, we've got, this, we've got these rails. Here's how we do it. And the front rail is curved. It's all alone for you. You might want to come forward and spend some time with Jesus. The side rails, there'll be friends there that'll pray with you. Either one is wide open. A couple, couple things you might choose to do. Maybe, maybe you began to follow Jesus a long, long time ago, but you have forgotten the sweetness of his love, his pursuit. And maybe you just need to say thank you. Jesus, thank you for that person who came by my dorm. Thank you that my mom said this. Thank you that these friends called me out in this. Thank you for that book that I read. And you want to just thank him. Jesus, this is where the story started. This is where the romance began. 
and you come down, you just want to spend some time and thank him. Or maybe what's on your mind is somebody that needs to hear your story, and I'm afraid, I don't know what to say, I'm going to feel so stupid, but I would love them to hear of your love and your grace. And you want to come down and say, Lord, give me the courage, give me the words, help me tell the tale, right? Or maybe something, nothing related to that at all. It's just, man, you've been dragging something around all week, and you're afraid, or you're nervous, you're scared, or you're guilt-ridden. And you just need to take some time and process with Jesus. It's all, it's wide open, whatever you need. We're here for you. He is here for you. And I'm gonna pray for you that whatever he's pleased to do in these next few minutes, he'll do and you will cooperate with him as we seek to be a people that are just constantly talking about how great he is in such a way that other people will want to know him too. Cool? Lord Jesus, you're the king of every story. You are the hero of our story. Even our stories are about you. You are the center of all things. And we love you and we thank you, Lord, that you didn't just leave us alone, but you pursue us. Lord, I pray for those that are right here that are like, I don't know, you're pursuing me. Lord, would you chase them? Would you win them? Would you be the hound of heaven? Capture their hearts. Win them from rebellion and the love of unworthy things and lift their eyes to see your splendor. And we thank you, Lord, that through whatever means, you did it for us. Would your praises ring out from this place and from these places of work, from these neighborhoods, in these households, that people would see your beauty and your greatness. We lift you up. Thanks for loving us. Amen.